happy end. I can't believe it's already December, December 1st. What a year it's been for us. It's hard to imagine that last year we were uh, celebrating uh, Advent at our old building. We were also kind of um, you know, going through just beginning a process of a lot of different transitions. And I just really want to thank God right now for um, just all the things that he's carried us through in the last 12 months. And if you think about personal, each one of you, you know, all of us are different after a year. Mm -hmm. now, hopefully we've grown uh, not just wider like I have, but you know, you've grown spiritually deeper. And some of you are younger, you're taller. Praise God. Now let's, let's open up with a word of prayer before we get into the word of God. God, we just pause this moment to give you praise and glory. Lord, from you come all things, and to you go all things. Lord, you are the lamb who was slain for us, the Passover lamb, Lord God, who gave your life so that we might find ours so that the penalty and the punishment for our sin may be lifted from us, so that we might live in your grace and in your freedom, so that we might be adopted into your family, Lord, not, not because of our own merit, but because of your joy that you found in including us into your love. And we thank you, Lord God, for the promise of continuing forever eternal abundant life, that as we are rooted in the vine, we will be nourished by the vine, and we will bear fruit from the vine. So God, I just pray a blessing over us this morning, each and every one of us. We pray for the fruit of joy. We pray for the fruit of peace. We pray for the fruit that can come only from being rooted in the vine. And God, in the name of Jesus, Lord God, we call upon you in your mercy to cut us off from all the other false vines that we have rooted ourselves in. The, the, the vines of materialism and the, 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 the vines of finding our worth in things that disappoint us, the the, the vines of tying up our identities and relationships with other people, the vines of trying to, to, to find perfection or, or achievement or control or, or freedom from fear. God, we just say you, Jesus, you're the only vine. You, Father, are the only vine. You, Holy Spirit, are the only vine. As we go into your word, would you nourish us today from that? In your name I pray. All right, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up the book of Matthew. We're going to look at the 24th chapter, 24th and the 25th chapter. So in, in this Advent season, uh, Advent is typically the four weeks leading up to Christmas. And Advent is actually the very first season of the church calendar. Um, the church calendar typically has followed kind of the the agrarian calendar, right? So you start with Advent, and you start with the story of Jesus. Advent is a story of waiting for Jesus. Christmas is actually about two weeks, and that's the story of, of God, Emmanuel, come to us. And after that is Epiphany, which is, you know, the story of these wise men who, who came searching for Jesus, and it reflects us and us as we search for him in our world, in our lives. After that is Lent, as we begin our journey towards Easter, where we reflect upon the ways that Christ, even though he was fully God, fully man, yet he chose to put aside all the privileges and all the powers of Godhood and to become one of us. And even here, he emptied himself, even to death on a cross. And so he calls you and I, that we too, as his disciples, are to pick up our crosses and to empty ourselves. And from Lent, we come to the grand, grand celebration of Easter, the center of all we are and all we do. 
that Christ is risen. Amen? Christ will come again. And, and from Easter, we celebrate Easter for seven weeks, you know, is capped off by Pentecost. And Pentecost is when we celebrate that Christ did not leave us as orphans. He said, I'm going for a little while, but I'm going to leave my spirit, wait for the helper. And, and on the day of Pentecost, the church was filled with the spirit of God, the presence of God, and the power of God, so that you and I, we don't go around just living in our own power, amen? We don't go around trying to do the things of God with our own insufficiency, but we have the sufficiency of God in us. Filled with the Holy Spirit, we're sent out into the world to accomplish this great commission. And from, from there, we go into what we call ordinary time, when we talk about the life of the church and what God has called us to be. But, but I'm getting ahead of myself because we, we are in Advent right now. Very, very first season. And like I said during communion, Advent celebrates two things. We join with God's people as they were living through the hundreds of years of silence from the end of the Old Testament, waiting for God to speak again, wondering, God, if you have made us all these promises through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then Joseph and, 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 and Moses, and you promised to be with us and you promised to execute justice upon us, and you promised, Lord, to establish us in a land where we might show the world who you are, then why are things so hard? Why does it actually seem that God's people are the most oppressed out of all his peoples? And is it these hundreds of years of waiting? You know, when we have to commend them, they didn't give up. They waited. And one generation died without seeing the promise, but they taught the next generation. They say, okay, it may not come in my lifetime, it may come in yours, so wait faithfully. And so the next generation waited, and then they died without seeing the promise, but they taught their children, it may not come in my lifetime, it did not come in my father's lifetime, but it may come in yours, and then the next generation waited, and then the next generation waited, and they were waiting and waiting and waiting. This is what it means to be a parent in God's people, not just to wait, but to teach your children how to wait. What were they waiting for? They weren't totally sure, except they knew it would be this. God is faithful to his promise. And so they waited. And they waited. And they waited. And then the most humblest of all beginnings, in, in a stable, in, in a place where it was supposed to be Jesus' hometown, but there was no room at home for Jesus. He did not even have a home. His own did not know him, nor did they receive him. <coughs> then, God came to us, emptied himself up, and says, I am the light of the world. I am the hope of the world. And so we celebrate that. Because to be Christian is for us to gather together and say, we have waited, but not only have we waited, we have seen. Amen? We have seen many of us around this, in, in this room are Chinese. And there was a time when the vast majority of Chinese did not know the existence of a Christ. They did not. But God in his grace and his mercy granted us the gospel and the 
the light came to our people. It's not a light that belongs to any other culture or any other nation. It is a light that is separate from all cultures, is separate from all nations. And it came to us that we too have seen the light. And because of that light, we're changed. I'm changed. I'm not the same today. The gospel has changed my life. Once, you know, I'm like all these other high schoolers in the 90s, dreaming of maybe one day working in a tech job, maybe one day making my money. You know, I, I, my mind is filled with just making millions. But the Lord gave me something higher to live for. And many of you who are in the tech companies, you're in the tech companies, but God also has given you something higher to live for. And you live out your higher purpose inside your job in the tech company. That when you go into your relationships and you go through your friendships, you go through your marriages, the way you relate to your children, the way you relate to your parents, you do not do it as someone without Christ. That you are informed by the power and the life of Christ. And as Christians, there's even a fearlessness with which we go about things. Knowing that even if our mortal bodies die, there is an immortal body to come. Amen? Amen? We do not fear death. We are not the people who fear death. Not because we're so great, but because he's so great. And he promised us. He promised us. But we're also waiting. Here's what I'm waiting for. Here's what you're waiting for. Jesus Christ said he will come again. He will come again to finally complete everything that was promised. So many things in the prom that are promised in the Bible have not yet come to pass. I have seen a measure of the light, but I have not seen the fullness of the light. All you have to do is turn on the news. All you have to do is turn on the news. And you see all around us a world that is engulfed in the flames of outrage, but the flames of hopelessness. It's not just the fact that we, are, we live in societies where where there are all these different ideologies and all these different protests and, and all these people who are seeking violent means to address the pain in their hearts. But when you look at the content of the ideologies and you look at the content of the protests, there's actually a hopelessness that is there. And so, for example, when you look at some of these young people, my heart goes out for them, who are protesting for climate change. I personally believe that we do need to be stewards of the environment. That is a biblical from Adam to our time. But I look at the protests, and you know what I see? Hopelessness. I see hopelessness. I see young people who look at the future and they don't actually think things can get better. I look at the protests in, in Iraq, in Iran, the ones that happened in Korea, the ones that are happening in Spain, the ones that are happening in Hong Kong, the ones that are spreading like wildfire all around the world. And there is a hopelessness that's there. We are literally watching the dissolution of the post-World War II order. And so many people in our world are so full of anxiety, so full of fear, so wanting to give up. They're in despair because they watched everything that their parents and they themselves have worked for fall apart under the pressure of forces outside of their control. And young people are full of despair because the world that they grew up knowing may not exist in 10 years. But we, Christians, 
the ones who have no hope. We are not the ones without hope. Because our hope is not in any earthly ideology. Our hope is not in any earthly order. It is not any of those things. Where is our hope? Where is your hope in mind? It is in Jesus Christ. He is in Jesus Christ. He's our savior. He's our sanctifier. He is our healer. And he is our coming king. And there will be a day promises, when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And he and his benevolence will come with his judgment and the nations will fear him that he will gather up his people. And like a mother hen gathering up her chicks to the bosom, so Christ will gather you up. This is the Bible. And this is our comfort. So let, let's turn to Matthew 24. Let, let's read that. This is our lectionary text, the text uh, for this week. We're going to start in verse 32. Sorry, 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away so will be the coming of the Son of Man. The two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let this house be broken into. Therefore you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom his master has sent over his household to give them the food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This is interesting, right? This is not what most of us expect when we're thinking about like, getting ready for Christmas. But this is, the, this is the verse chosen for us from the lectionary. That as the church of God all around the world are getting ready for Jesus' coming, getting ready to celebrate his first coming. We're remembering his second coming. And what you have to know about his second coming is this. This is what we have been waiting for. This is what we have been waiting for. This is the result of all the hope and all the faith and all the expectation we have. That when you have a longing to see Jesus in full, where you see him only in part, when he comes again, you will see him in full. You will know him in full. That when you have a longing to see joy in full and see peace in full. See, a lot of people, what they do is instead of wanting this, when they say they're Christian, they say they want to die. <coughs> and what they mean by that is they feel that when they die, they will go to heaven, and heaven will be a glorious place. And there, there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow. Mm -hmm. And so we look forward to passing out of this world and getting to the next. But let me ask you a question. What is it that makes heaven so good? What is it that makes heaven so good? Is it not the presence of Jesus? So Jesus is not in heaven. I don't want to go. It's the same expectation and hope that I have that when Jesus says he's coming here, 
He's coming again to gather us up. That is the desire of my heart. That is the desire that the Gospels teach us to have, to wait for his presence. But can, can I make a confession to you? Sometimes I feel like if I can go to heaven, but I don't have to deal with Jesus, that would be an attractive option. If I don't have to like follow him, if I don't have to do what he says, if I don't have to go through this life carrying everything he asked me to carry, then maybe, can I just go to heaven and not have to worry about that? I mean, can I go through this life? I know this life is hard, right? But when I need help, can I ask him for help? And then when I'm lost, can I ask him like for guidance? But then I more or less have a good life here. And then when I die, I get to go to heaven. And in heaven, I can just be in this good place where I don't have to worry about it. Doesn't that sound good? The thing is, when we talk about Christianity as a relationship with God, it means that there is no Christianity without relationship with God. And you and I have to ask, what is that relationship mean? Because when Jesus comes back, we will all be judged on the basis <coughs> of that relationship. Right? You look at the text. <coughs> 36, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, but you, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. What were the days of Noah? What was going on then? But then you know, go back to the book of Genesis, right? It tells us that, you know, from Adam and Eve's first sin, first transgression, instead of things getting better, instead of humans saying, oh, you know what? I'm so sorry I made a mistake, God. You know, I I'm going to do better next time. You know, even if they did that, they couldn't do better the next time because sin is not just a choice that you make. Sin is a state that you become born into. So the first sin, they eat the apple. The second human sin in Genesis is murder. A brother kills a brother. And it just gets worse from there. Until you get to the part about Noah where it says the whole world has been filled with sin and exploitation. And God, you can see in the text, was waiting with patience, hoping, waiting, and not seeing any change. And finally he says, okay, I'm going to come. I've got to fix this problem. But he looks around the earth and he finds one person. He's not a perfect person. In fact, you learn very quickly he's definitely not a perfect person. He has made a lot of mistakes in his life, but there's one thing he does right. He still remembers God. He still tries to follow him. He still tries to live by him. So God says, Noah, I want you to build a boat and I'm going to, I want you to leave the door open. And I'm going to bring in a remnant of all creation. Right? So you have all the animals going two by two, except for the, the clean animals. The clean animals go by seven. And finally, he says, Noah, take your family, go in there. And then the hand of God itself closes the door of the ark. And then the flood comes. And here in this text, it says, the coming of the Son of Man will be like the day. <coughs> and the idea is this. Are you going to be ready? What does it mean to be ready? In, in, in verse 42, here in, in uh, ESV, in my version, it, it says, um, 
be alert, right? Uh, and there's another version that will say like, keep watch. It is the idea not of like, hey, make sure you see it because you might miss it. It's more like the idea of you are a watchman. You are a person who is a guard, maybe a security guard. And you are supposed to keep alert. Don't fall asleep on the job. It becomes really important to me when I read this text to ask this question, what does it mean to be on the alert? And the biggest reason why this is important is because you and I live ordinary lives. We have jobs to do. We have families to care for and love. And so is there practically instruction for us? What does it mean to keep alert for Christ because he may be coming at any time? And surprise, surprise, in the Bible, it does give these practical examples. But the practical examples may not be what you expect. The practical examples in the form of a parable. And you find them in the next chapter, Matthew 25. Here's the first story. The first story is what we know as the parable of the ten marines. So the story goes like this. There's a wedding. There's a wedding. And there's a wedding procession. Now, the weddings back then are a lot more like a traditional Chinese wedding than it is like a traditional Western wedding. Here's what I mean by that. Now, you know how in like, you know, a traditional Western wedding, you pretty much expect you show up at the church, you, you know, there's a ceremony, and then when the ceremony's done, you're like, oh, kiss the bride, and okay, you guys are married. But you know, a traditional Jewish wedding or Middle Eastern wedding is much more like a Chinese wedding. There's like a whole day involved. And, and part of this day is a procession uh, to, to the groom's house. Now, I remember uh, when I was a child, I went to a relative's wedding. It was in New York City, and it was in July, so it was super, super hot and muddy. And um, basically, instead of going to the, to the groom's house, I was with all the groomsmen, and we made a procession to the bride's house. Now, some of you guys know this tradition in Chinese weddings where um, the groom has to do different things to basically like get the bride to come out, right? So it's like, you know, it's, it's like a game that you play, right? So you, know, you, you bribe the bridesmaids with red pockets, and you, you, you say different things, and you're trying to get them to come out. But, but there was a problem on this day. The problem on this day was, unbeknownst to me or some of the other groomsmen, the bride woke up really angry at the groom that morning. <laughs> so it was over 100 degrees. We're in Chinatown. There's no air conditioning, and she was not letting us in. She was not going to let us in. And I remember that at first he did all the things, he said all the things, he had all the red pockets, all the grooms, and we got into it, you know, no response. And I, th I kid you not, after about 45 minutes, we gave up. Five of us groomsmen, sitting on the, just sitting on the steps of this like old, narrow, super hot, super muggy Chinatown apartment, the grooms got his head in his hands. We didn't know what we were going to do. But we were waiting. <laughs> we were waiting, and we were tired, and I wanted to fall asleep because it was so hot and muddy. And so the story of the Ten Virgins is that, except it's going to the bride's house, it's going to the groom's house. And what you see in the story is that these ten virgins, and they probably were young girls, they were probably between the age of maybe 10 to 15, they had each tried to stay awake 
They had each kind of brought a torch, as each of them were supposed to do, because when the door opened, they were going to then do a torchlight procession to the wedding site. They fell asleep. And then suddenly, the groom comes out, and like, oh, okay, it's time for the procession. Let's go, let's go, let's go. But only five of them were ready, and the five were not. So when they reached the end of the procession, the groom says to the five who were not ready, who didn't bring oil, he said, I don't know you. That phrase is not, I don't know you, like I literally don't know you, because back then everybody knew everybody else inside the village. That phrase means, I feel so dishonored by you, because you were not ready for my wedding, that I'm going to act like I don't know. So the first story in Matthew 25 that Jesus tells us to say, this is what it means to get ready for his coming, is this. Value him, value the Lord by attending to his presence. Some of us went to the retreat two weeks ago, and you, know, you heard Lisa talk about listening to God's voice. How many of you have been practicing hearing God's voice? If you were anything like me, the first weeks, months, maybe even years, that you practice hearing the voice of God, you may not get very much. I would say that the first years I did it, maybe the first eight to 10 years, I got close to milk. It's true. And there are many times when I wanted to give up or did give up. And it's really only by His grace that He kept calling me back to sit in silence to make time for him, to wait in his presence, to just say, Jesus, talk to me. And you know, especially when you're a teenager, right, you don't have a long attention span. You're like, Jesus, talk to me. And then, Only 15 seconds. <laughs> I, I gotta go do something else. And it's true, this is gonna happen. It still happens. I still sometimes have to get used to his silence, but I also have to get used to the fact that silence doesn't mean he's not going to say anything. Silence is sometimes an invitation to wait more. One of the best teachings on this that I've received was the, the person said, imagine that you're in the throne room of God, and God the King is your father, which he is. He's adopted us as his children. And he's doing his official business, and you're a little child in the throne room. Can you look at him and have your attention fully be on him and be fascinated by what he's doing, even when he's not paying attention to you? If David has my attention, he fully has my attention. He doesn't have to look at me. He could be like really awkward right now, just like look around the room, right? He has my attention because I am fully present with him. Do you value the presence of God? Because that's what the story is about. But sometimes when you are trying to listen to God, sometimes when you're trying to hear him or sit with him or learn from him, nothing happens. And you may even fall asleep. Your actions will demonstrate your value. And I guarantee you, 
even if you feel like nothing is happening, something is happening. You know what's happening? Your Father who loves you sees your heart, and He is grateful to you. Because He wants a relationship with you, maybe even more than you want a relationship with Him. If a young man pursues a young woman and gives up after the first time, he's not going to get there. God wants to be pursued in the same way that he's pursuing you. Can you imagine if God gave up after the first time you ignored him? I wouldn't be anywhere. The next story is the story that we call the parable of the talents. Now this is a very misleading kind of title because the talent here is actually a, a, a unit of currency. So basically what a talent's amounted to is 20 years wages for like a common soldier. So one talent you could imagine is basically a lifetime of wages. And here there's a king and he gives out talents, different amount of talents to different amount of, to, to different servants. And he goes away on a trip and he comes back and he says to the first guy, when he comes back, okay, I gave you five talents and the servant says, great, I have 10 for you now. This master says, good job. And then the second guy says, you know, you gave me two talents, here's four, so good job. And the last guy says, you gave me one talent, and I'm scared of you. And so I buried it so I wouldn't lose it. And the master says, well, if you knew I was so scared, why didn't you at least put it in the bank? But because you didn't get do anything with my talent, I'm going to take away your talent and give it to someone who has and a lot of people, we, we read this and we interpret that as like, okay, we should like use our earthly talents or even use our resources and our money, you know, to, to build the church or, or, or whatever, right? And, and this is good, that's partially it. But here's the deeper message behind that, which is do you understand that everything you have belongs to God? Everything. All your relationships, all of your time, all of your resources, the children you have, these are all graces from God. We thank God for his grace, but this, when he comes back, he will hold me and you accountable. There will be an accounting. Have I been mindful of the fact that everything I have comes from God? And have I then translated that mindfulness into a orientation of my life where I invest everything I have for his purposes. Because it's his. It's not about how much profit you make. The first profit, first servant makes more profit than the second servant. They both get the same kind of reward. It's about what is your mindset? What is the orientation of your life? What is the commitment you make? The commitment you make comes from whether or not you think the stuff you have is yours or his. Let me put it to you more, more, more bluntly. If I think everything I have is mine, then my orientation on this earth is to basically try to make life as comfortable for me as I can. 
And then I will use my overflow, whatever I have left over, and I will say, God, I want to praise you with it. This is what I bless you with my overflow. I'm not just talking about resources here. I'm talking about time. I'm talking about relationships. But if my orientation is everything I have, my friendship with each and every one of you, isn't mine. It's God's. Then I have to view my friendship with each of you not as something I can do with however I please. I actually have to treat each of you as holy. Because if I transgress upon you, I transgress upon the Lord. <coughs> that, you know, the money I have, thank you all for paying for my paycheck. Well, thank you, right? It's not mine. It's not my paycheck. It is the Lord's resources to me. So what do I have to do when I get my paycheck? God, what do you want me to do with your money? God, what do you want me to do with my time? It's not my time, but it's your time. See, some of us, we're frustrated. We're constantly frustrated because we say, I never have enough time. The thing is, it's not your time, and it's not my time. It's his time. Ask him what he wants to do with his time, and you'll never go wrong. You'll never go wrong. If you let your needs dictate how you do your stewardship, your needs will never lead you to Jesus. And when he holds you to account one day, you won't have an answer for it. But when you say, Lord, I have these needs, and these are real needs. So Lord, I'm going to do as you say, but I need you, Lord, to provide for these needs. Because you put me into a situation where I have to be responsible for these people in my life. You put me in a situation where I have to be responsible for these things in my life what you will start to see is the resource of heaven flowing to you. Because now your orientation is not for yourself, your orientation is for him. He always resources what he plans to do. If he calls you to be a father, do you think he's not gonna resource that? Of course he's gonna resource that. Because that is his calling in your life that you are obeying to the best of your ability. And so therefore, you don't have to put it all on yourself. In fact, to put it all on yourself would be actually to be a poor steward. What is the orientation of your life? And finally, there's a story at the Last Judgment. And it's a really, really interesting story because a lot of us, when we think of the Last Judgment, we think God is going to like, you know, pull up a movie or pull up a list of all your sins. Okay, how many sins have you done? You know, some, some people who are, you know, uh, maybe who haven't read the Bible as much, they might imagine, like, okay, God's got two lists. Here's a list of my sins. Here's a list of my good deeds. Okay, let's try to measure the good deeds against the sins and say whether you're a good person or not. But here, Jesus tells us what's actually going to happen at the Last Judgment. And here's what Jesus is going to say. He says, You know, when I was hungry, did you give me food? When I was thirsty, did you give me drink? When I was a stranger, did you welcome me? When I was naked, did you clothe me? When I was sick, did you visit me? When I was in prison, did you come visit me? And you notice that every person that Jesus asks these questions to are totally confused. They're like, Lord, when did we ever see you sick? Lord, when did we ever see you naked? Lord, when did we ever see you poor? And here's a really important thing to, to remember about this, that this is not just a situation about people who are in need. 
Back then, what they thought was that if you were poor, it was because you were sinful. If you're in prison, it's clearly because you're sinful. If you're sick, it's because you sin or your parents sin or whatever. So back then, what they thought was your physical condition reflected your moral condition. So that's why they're so confused when they say, Jesus, when did we ever see you sick? Jesus, you're perfect. You are the only one good person. How would you ever end up in this situation? And Jesus says, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. Why? Why is it that whatever I do for the worst sinner in my life, I'm doing for Christ? Because sinners are not made clean by merit, they're made clean by grace. And when you see people with the same grace that Jesus has, you will see Jesus in them. I only want to serve the good people. I only want to give to the good, responsible ones. Well, good, I hope, I hope you do. But you know what? Sometimes God will call you to look with eyes of grace. Do you know what the highest form of love is in the Bible? Love for your enemy. Love for your enemy. Love for the one who mistreats you. And what Jesus does is that he's telling the story of the Last Judgment. He takes all of these different things that we might try to weigh different, with different kind of formulas and you know, what am I supposed to do here and there? And Jesus says, no. It's all personal. Whatever you do for them, you do for me. Why? Because the single most important thing for a Christian is your relationship with God. I cannot claim to be friends with Jesus and walk by him with coldness in my heart. So what does it mean to watch? What does it mean to wait? So we're waiting for the second coming. How do we do this well? Christian faith is a hope in Christ that is manifested in persistent and expectant action. I love what Shane Claiborne says when he talks about Advent. He says Advent is about a birth. It's about the first birth of the Christ child, but it's also about the birth of Christ's kingdom when it's coming. And when you're getting ready for a birth, you don't sit around. If you're a husband and you sit around getting ready for a birth, you're in for a very rude surprise and a very angry wife. There are things you have to do. Paint the baby room. Buy a crib. Hold a baby shower. Read some parenting books. You've got to get ready. Go to like, you know, the prenatal checkup. Do the breathing classes, the Lamar classes. You've got to get ready. So how do we know that we have faith? Is if our hope manifests in expectant action. Now I added expectant for a reason. Because I look at myself and I think a lot of my hope, if I'm really honest, is hedging. Well, I don't know when Jesus is going to come. I mean, he said he was going to come. So I'm going to do these things just in case he comes. I'm going to do these things just in case that God shows up. I'm going to do these things just in case that this Bible is true. But if I believe 
that the Bible is true. <coughs> if I believe that the promises of God are true, then I am going to expect them to come true. And if I expect them to come true, there are actions that I'm going to take. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This is not a verse about doing good things for people. Although that's the example of Jesus. This is a verse that says, if you have faith, it will manifest by doing the things that are important to God, which in this case happens to look like doing good things for people. If I'm really living for God, what am I going to do in my life? The things that God cares about. So how do you know if I'm a Christian? Well, let me ask you a question. Let's say that... Um, I'm applying for a job. Okay. Let's hypothetically say I'm an engineer. I'm applying for a job. How do you know I'm a good engineer? Would you simply trust the words that I tell you in the interview? HR people say one of the most important things that you can look at is actually reference. Other things, they might give you something to do, a task to do right in the interview and see if you can actually do it. And it's the same thing for my faith. If you look at my calendar, what are my priorities? When you look at my checkbook, what are my priorities? When you ask the friends I have and the relationships I have, what are my priorities? And, and brothers and sisters, I want to be clear here. The point of this and the point of Matthew 24 25 is not to shame us, it is to call us to live for a higher call. The Bible understands that none of us start out there. But as we walk day to day, following Christ, His Spirit will bring you there. And so don't despair. And don't judge yourself. Some of you right now in your head, you've got to change your self-talk. Some of you hearing this message, you're like, oh, I'm just a crummy now, you see, If you have that negative self-talk, you will never be able to let the Bible correct you. So the Bible's teaching needs to be able to point out things in my life where I need to be able to grow in. I, I need God to take me to the edge of the cliff to see how deep I am so that he can lift me up to where he wants me to be. And if I'm always worried about shame because of the negative self-talk I've had, I can never get to the edge. But would you let the Holy Spirit take you to the edge today? I believe with all my heart that every single one of you so much greater than you can imagine. And your call to a calling is so much greater than you can imagine. God uses ordinary people. But the problem is, we think we're still ordinary, but we're filled with the Holy Spirit. He is extraordinary. So may we become lesser. May He become greater. May He take you and I to the discipleship carry our cross so that you and I are ready when he comes again. Let me close with this.
It's a very practical question. How do you be on the alert? How are you making time and space for its presence? Like I said, we, we all have the same amount of time, and, and a time is his. He, he apportioned it to each and every one of us. Some of us, the only time we have for that space and presence is maybe 10 minutes in the car, and then maybe like 10 minutes when you get home. Some of you are extraordinarily busy, and I understand that. So how are you using those 20 minutes? Am I using it on YouTube? <laughs> Second question is, how do his priorities factor into my stewardship decisions? How do his priorities factor into my stewardship decisions? Sometimes I am so obsessed with resourcing that I actually don't prioritize his priorities. But what I have found to be true in the Christian life is that when I prioritize his priorities, then he provides the resources. First, make it your heart's ambition to follow him. First, make it your heart's ambition to do all he has set before you to do, and then he will provide. He's not gonna provide the minute before sometimes. Sometimes he'll only provide at the minute he starts. The third question is, how do you make effort to honor the marginalized as you would want? I noticed on Thanksgiving, this was a really cold Thanksgiving, right? That was the first time I saw frost in my windows. Um, saw a lot more homeless around the, um, around the supermarket. You know, you don't have to do a lot. Sometimes all it takes is you go into the hot section, you buy a cup of soup, $6 and give it to a cold person. I saw one guy, he was so cold, he was sitting at the table in front of Sprouts that he was just, his leg was just going up and down trying to keep himself warm. Do you see Jesus? Do you see Jesus cold? Do you see Jesus, and would you like to give Jesus the most? It's so easy to do this just around the holidays. I want to exhort us. Let's be this person all around. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I, I, I confess I need you. I confess, Lord God, that so often my priorities are not set up. And my attention is not set up. And I don't want to see you, Father, and, and the people I pass by because it is so inconvenient to me, God. And sometimes it doesn't even feel safe. God, I confess that even as I prepare the sermon, Lord, I, I am convicted by you. So help me, Lord. Because I'm so grateful that my relationship with you is not about me trying to be perfect to make you happy. My relationship with you is about asking you being open with you and asking you to bring me to where you want me to be because I want to have that relationship with you. I want to be that good child. It's not about what I know. It's about what I do. And Lord, I pray for us as a church. May what we do manifest what we believe. I pray this in your name.